there's no time to be emerging. You might not have the wisdom of established leaders, but you still have something to offer. I don't want to discount the wisdom or the grey heads in the room, but the real power then is when you combine that library of knowledge with fresh eyes. Suddenly you've got fireworks. And so like how, how queer could I be in a circle of farmers, for instance? Like, how colourful should I be? Like, what should I do? And I, I think I stuck to my guns and actually what I found was people met me with love and collaboration. It's been a huge journey to get to that point of, like, loving oneself. Welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Hello, I'm one of your biggest fans. <laughs> <laughs> It's nice to be on this podcast. I'll be able to listen with my mum afterwards. They <laughs> are our biggest fans and I can tell you. I actually reckon, I'll say it up front, mum loved Sam Burke a few weeks ago. I think mum, Robin Lalive, is going to love this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vicky Ives is also going to be up there as a big fan as well. So, Bryce, I've written a little intro. You're the boy from Ballarat who utilises creative arts to create an energy that allows people to unlock their brilliance. From intimate small group conversations to rooms of thousands, Bryce, you've got an uncanny ability to connect with, inspire and engage with an incredibly diverse group of people. I'm so excited to find out more about your journey, your background, who you are, what drives you, because your pathway, your passions, they're absolutely not linear, they're unique, but they're incredible. And we are so lucky to have you as a human of agriculture. So welcome. And I hope that is an interesting little introduction for you. Look, it's really beautiful to hear. And I'm also like, so interested in what you do in terms of that storytelling piece and how we actually bring the human story of agriculture to life. And so, I mean, in a way, I think we share that, like right up front, that thing around conversations actually do matter. People connecting with one another matters. And actually in that connection, it's more than just like lip service or more than just box ticking exercises. That connection often produces innovation. I feel like we share that, Ollie. We do. I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about you. So if I was to get the chance to chat with Vicky Ives, what would she tell me? Who is Bryce? What makes Bryce the character he is? I feel like that line from the life of Ryan, he's just a very naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which actually is, you know, somewhat true. Because like, if I step right back, firstly, mum and dad like were really working class Dad came out as a 10-pound pom to Australia from Scotland, and he's very Scottish. And we grew up, you know, in Ballarat. And I would say, like, one of the things that defines the family, well, there are two things. One, the Scottish side and that sense of migration in the 50s and 60s and needing to redefine themselves in Australia and in regional Australia. And then from my mum's side, the thing that really defines them is and I say this with a lot of love, is intergenerational rural poverty. And so, like, actually, for me, one of the things that continues to inspire me, provoke me and, and motivate me is this sense that in rural Australia, there is so much to be proud of and so much that we can point to that we should just say is exemplary. But there are also narratives that we can't turn our back to. So, like, the intergenerational poverty piece is, like, right up there for me, like, where there is a cycle between grandparents, parents, and then their children. 
that you can't escape around literacy, numeracy, being underemployed. And so like that is really where my mum's side was coming from and is mostly still grappling with. And so I guess that from very early on, I was able to see that there's something that's out of whack here that we have to like fight. So something that I've been grappling with is that rural Australians deserve opportunities, like deserve that chance to step into amazing jobs and amazing careers and also deserve to break that cycle. So as I described with my mum's family, that it's very difficult to step out of that intergenerational rural poverty piece. And I also believe, Ollie, like this is not a black or white issue. Indigenous Australians and and non-Indigenous Australians in rural places sometimes share this. You know, so young people who struggle to get to school, who struggle to have breakfast in the morning, who struggle to find basic jobs, who are struggling with literacy, with numeracy. That, you know, was part of my experience of growing up and growing up on the wrong side of the tracks in a, a place like Ballarat. And so I guess that that motivates me every single day around what can we do to ensure that every young person in rural and and regional Australia has that chance to shine and to flourish, have pathways for their skills? How do we change the narrative so young people in rural and, and regional Australia feel like they don't have to leave if they're talented, they can stay or they can boomerang in and out of rural and regional Australia with their careers and their lives and they can be making rural and regional Australia better because at the core of it I see across the nation like so much as I say opportunity but so many um, long-term systemic challenges and my work has always been dealing with that and so if I jump right back that's important to understand when you ask like who is Bryce Ives because I had to work extremely hard firstly to escape that cycle that existed in the family I was also like completely an oddball from the beginning, you know, like had all of these interests that were just not part of the family's narrative, you know, like this sudden interest in performance and in storytelling and radio and broadcasting. But also I had undiagnosed ADHD, you know, so I was extremely quick and tenacious and from a very young age was just building sort of projects and events and happenings that were kind of way beyond my capacity and understanding. And like ultimately, I've tried to stay true as well to what I know, which is at my heart, I want to try and make a better country and a better world. And I'm starting from my own patch all of the time. So by the age of 13 or 14, I think, you know, I'd been in trouble as many times as I'd been successful. (laughs) I'd completely like stumbled my way through the traditional educational system, but people in Ballarat will be able to recall so many examples of moments of brilliance as well. You know, like I think about the age of 14, I staged a massive production with like a hundred young people of uh, Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream for the Ballarat Begonia Festival. And there were rock bands and techno musicians and, you know, that sort of thing. So I was doing this kind of stuff from the age of 12, 13, 14 in and out of the principal's office at the same time, you know, like (laughs) running my own radio programs at the same time and like concurrently succeeding and failing triumphantly in the traditional educational system. And so, you know, like that all defines who I am now. 
like the the connection with agriculture has always been around family and friends and growing up right on the like the fringes of Ballarat and so spending so much time between friends and family's farms and then stepping away from Ballarat you know at the age of 18 like I spent the first four or five years of that time setting up the youth radio station Sin FM in Melbourne which when I took on the role of general manager of Sin at the age of 19 as a country kid you know the person is silly enough to put up their hand and go yeah I think I can do this we had like Hamish and Andy as drive presenters my dear friend Stella Young from Stall is one of the your main presenters, Waleed Ali, Zan Rowe, like all of these people who were helping to make this radio station. But I always reflect on this, Ollie, the leadership team, we were all country kids. We all came from the country and we were all the backbone of making CineFM get on the air and get the funding that it needed and to build the system that it needed for all of these talented people to thrive. And so I think that you know, you always carry your country values, right? And you always carry that sense of where you come from. And it was when I joined the ABC, Sue Howard, who was the director of radio. So I've got this great project. I'm not sure what we want to do with it. It's called Haywire, but you have a look at it. And at that point, it was really an essay competition where you'd read an essay on the air and you were a Haywire winner. And what I was able to do with Haywire was to take all of the lessons from starting up SIN and all of my like notions of performance and theatre and storytelling and was able to build Haywire into a very substantial platform both within the ABC, sharing those stories of young people, but also through the Haywire Summit, impacting the conversation and the discourse in Canberra. And then later on by building, you know, with other partners, funding and opportunities to take the ideas from Haywire back into communities and back into young people. And like, really, that was a culmination point where I think I came right back to my grassroots. And over about five years, every kept on coming back to agriculture. So if you'd said to me, like, at the age of 18, Bryce, by the age of 40, you'll have had a profound connection and partnership with many key parts of Australian farming and agriculture, I would have been like, you are drunk. Shut up. That is not <laughs> happening. <laughs> you know, I'm getting out of country Australia. I'm, you know, like going to trailblaze and do my work elsewhere. That was the whole premise, particularly in starting up SIN. That was the whole idea. Get as far away from all of that stuff, right? But actually, like, through Haywire, you know, through that art of storytelling, and the summit of gathering people together. So telling the stories of young people and then gathering them together in Canberra and thinking about change and thinking about community. Ultimately, I had to face a home truth. And the home truth was all of the change that I believed in, all of the things that I wanted to see happen in rural Australia and for young people in rural Australia, basically relied on agriculture thriving. And for agriculture to thrive, there were some major systemic changes within that had to take place. And so that's really what brought me back into the fold, you know. And so I guess I've always been coming at it, Ollie, first and foremost, from the culture perspective and from the people perspective. You know, like I want young people to have jobs. And so I want agriculture to thrive. I want there to be 
a vibrant industry in the future. So I want it to be sustainable and I want it to be financially successful. I want to see Australian agriculture thrive on a world stage because that will have an impact in rural Australia, have an impact on health, on economics, on livability. And so again, you know, if you want it to thrive, then it needs to be world class. And so then you need the innovation piece. And so it was so interesting that I kind of had to come full circle, you know, and, and that was through Haywire to find like actually this was the thing that I cared most about and this was the thing that was most worth investing in and that's what I've done ever since. It's remarkable and we've got so much to unpack and I've just been sitting here just completely consumed by what you're saying but I really want to know Bryce before we jump into probably more of the what and hows of what you've done but like for you as a kid creating these opportunities for yourself whether it was the young performance or whatever it was like what was it about yourself that you were able to create these opportunities and not see roadblocks but see opportunity in it? Look, I don't know the exact answer to that anymore. Like, I feel like if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I had the answer. I'm a real believer, you know, the older I get, the less I know. <laughs> you know, the wiser I get, the more I realise, the less I know. One of the narratives that we don't celebrate enough that is in rural and regional Australia, if you are a young person who is willing to put up their hands, you will often be given the microphone. And you'll often be given the microphone because, firstly, you know, there aren't that many people who want to take hold of the microphone. And secondly, there are people who just believe in sharing the opportunities. And I can see this, like, with so many young people I've worked with. Like, I've just come back from the Mallee and I, I think about Joe Collins, who's a great young person who lives just near Sea Lake, and Joe you know, has got a wonderful story about how his um, Mallee town, you know, like wanted to do a, a silo art project but didn't want to do it on a silo. And it was Joe as a young person who kind of got everyone on side, the men's shed and the, the local Rotary Club and the local town committee and said, like, we could actually do this on the general store and it would be a better tourist attraction for the place. And as a young person, everyone in the community backed him. And, you know, fast forward now, Joe's like building a couple of homes for elderly people in the town because there's a lack of retirement homes. That's one example of like many across rural and regional Australia where I think that if you are able to put up your hand, the opportunities are often there for you to shine. And there is all of that research, Ollie, around if you go to a small school or if you go come from a rural school, you are actually more likely to take on a CEO role of a major company. Like in Australia, a lot of our CEOs come from small rural schools, for instance. But the question that you're really asking is, where's the tenacity around firstly putting up your hand? I actually don't have the answer to that. And I think that I'm making this sound a little bit rosy because not everyone is in that position, you know? And so I guess that that's the other part of my work constantly, which is with young people, how do I teach young people to get proud in their own skin so they can take up that opportunity? How do we make them feel confident in their ability to give something a go and to be able to take up that leadership opportunity or that space that needs to be taken up? Because I think that when they can do it, particularly in rural Australia, there is then that opportunity to really step up. And that's what happened with me. I think maybe there's one part of the puzzle which 
like I always reflect on a lot, and that is my dad is a bagpiper because he's Scottish, you know, and he wanted me really to play the bagpipes, and I wasn't interested in the bagpipes at all. But I became heavily involved in local theatre from a very, very young age, from about the age of five or six, Ollie. And it was very odd for my parents because they were like the least theatrical, <laughs> least stage parents you could ever imagine. Like, we're not in that space at all, but I was driven somehow around performance. And I think being the kid in adult theatre productions taught me a lot very quickly. So one of the things, like, say if you're Oliver in Oliver the Musical, or say <laughs> if you're um, one of the Von Trapp kids in The Sound of Music, you have to work as hard as the adults. There is no second gear for how the children in those sorts of works work. You have to learn your lines. You have to be present. You've got to be able to perform in front of a thousand people and do that work. And so I think that in some ways, maybe having that experience where the bar had not been lowered, because regularly we lower the bar for young people and for children. You know, you are leaders in waiting. You are children and you are young people. So we will lower the bar. Whereas I think that actually in that environment, the bar is set for everybody. The pressure was on me as much as it was on Captain Von Trapp and Maria. You know, like, we have to hold this work together as equals, not as adults as being superior, but actually as equals. And so maybe that, when I'm thinking about it out loud right now with your question, maybe that gave me a bit of an edge. And actually, perhaps that's why I'm about what I'm on about now. You know, like, say with all my work with young people in agriculture, I hate the whole idea that they're emerging leaders. You are leaders now. You know, you've got something to contribute to industry right now, this moment. There's no time to be emerging. You know, like, you might not have the wisdom of established leaders, but you still have something to offer. So, like, maybe that's actually it, Ollie. I don't know. Mm. You know, I've never, ever thought of that. And you being able to articulate it back into the arts of the that where the bar sits and the need to perform at a level, like it makes so much sense. <laughs> and yeah, well, I just think never ever have even contemplated it. It's just probably been I've probably just accepted that it's oh yeah, it's young people coming through, they're the young leaders, emerging leaders, whatever it might be, as opposed to what yeah, what is it that they're providing today? But also then acknowledging well, the leaders of the industry hopefully they're always learning and evolving as well. So hopefully they continue to emerge as well. And there is that Japanese saying around fresh eyes, you know, like around the value of, say, young leaders having fresh eyes or a fresh perspective. And so I don't want to for a second say that I discount the wisdom or the grey heads in the room. Actually, they are extremely important. And in fact, we've got to do more to value our elders. And I don't mean that just in an Indigenous sense. I mean that elders of industry, full stop, you know, like people who have trailblazed, have worked hard because each of them carry with them a library of knowledge. But the real power then is when you combine that library of knowledge with fresh eye. You know, the moment you do those two things, suddenly you've got fireworks, you know, and no industry does it particularly well, but I feel like agriculture could break the cycle and be so much better at doing this than anywhere else. Because actually we've got a passion in agriculture that no other industry has. Like we wear our hearts on our sleeves. And so if we could bring 
that young energy and put it side by side with that knowledge more often and really sit in partnership with it, well, the world's our oyster then. And I think it was Obama in one of his speeches and he was channeling the importance of ensuring that young people are part of the conversations because his words were that young people have the energy, they have the enthusiasm, they have the optimism to dream like what can be and it's up to exactly what you're saying that the older people to actually go, well, this is why it has been like that and this is what we've tried and this is the the wisdom we've gathered but actually let's not hold back that energy and enthusiasm and let's utilise that and channel it in a way which is productive because I completely agree. If you chat to anyone in agriculture and it comes back to people talking about, oh, the best part of the industry, it's about the people. It's about the people. It's about the communities. It's about the people. It's the passion. It's, it's always people-orientated. I mean, there is that, that saying, the most dangerous words are, this is how we've always done it. <laughs> you know, like, but I do think we are all capable of, this is how we've always done it. Mm. But I'm feeling your enthusiasm and I'm ready to work with you to try it again. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I think that understanding of course contexts change and ideas evolve as well and, and that it might be a different generation that unlocks the answer to a question or solves a problem and that's really where the exciting work happens i feel like with agri-futures horizon scholars program we've got better and better over time at sort of encouraging that youthful you know japanese fresh eyes approach but making sure that there is a real grounding in and your job is to partner well with people with knowledge. You know, your job is to really learn how to sit in conversation with people who've been around for a long time so we can then forge forward a path together. To me, it's very interesting to think about this and to come back to musical theatre. I've never articulated it quite like that before, Ollie, but I reckon there is something in it. Absolutely. I'm interested, did you ever have a plan for your career or did it just kind of evolve as different opportunities presented itself in front of you? Uh, I think that it's evolved. I think having undiagnosed ADHD has helped me immensely over the years because like, what it has meant is as long as I am learning and feeling energised from my learning, I'm actually a very happy human being. And so... The twists and turns, actually, my biography makes almost no sense by any career coach or success coach measure, right? You know, so like actually when you zoom out, I've had a really successful run directing major theatre, festivals and events around the world. I've had a very long run as a facilitator of events around the world. A large chunk of that work has been in agriculture and in rural industries and in rural communities. I've ran radio stations and TV stations, and I've kind of worked in all sorts of different places and lived in all different sorts of contexts. And so, like, you know, I've run a university. I've done all sorts of things, you know, in the last 25 years. So, like, I think being curious and just being willing to learn has kept me extremely fulfilled and has led to all sorts of places I could never have imagined. And so, like, that's kind of replaced any notion of a plan. There's been no plan at all. It's just been pure curiosity and a willingness to sort of step outside of my comfort zone regularly and to sort of step into places that I could not possibly have imagined. From there, I'm able to also add value to my work. So, like, when I come back and I work in very traditional broadcasting, theatre, 
you know, festivals and that sort of space, I am so much stronger for my long-term work in agriculture. Like I come back into those spaces and I have a perspective that no one else has in the room. And likewise, you know, like when I'm working with AgriFutures or if I'm working with the NFF or if I'm working with the Rural Youth Tasmania Movement or whoever it is, my, my practice and my work as an artist and as a creator brings a whole X factor into the conversation as well. And so I think that being curious has helped me a lot and there's been no plan at all. If anyone has like a really good approach to how to manage <laughs> a plan, I would love to know because I just can't, I don't have, have that sort of mindset. I'm always more interested in, well, I'm making it sound like I don't have a plan. I have three rules that I always ask myself, Ali. So the rules are, if you, so if you come to me and say like, let's do something, like let's do this project, in my head, I'll be asking myself three things. Is this worthwhile? Is this proposition or this project worthwhile? Worth my time, worth the time of others? Is it a worthwhile endeavor? The second question I ask is, is it doable? <laughs> you know, like, am I actually going to be able to deliver this? And that's not me being afraid of size and scale, but I always have that in my mind. Is this doable? And the third thing I ask myself is, will this give me joy? Will I, will I take joy out of this? And if I can't say yes, on all three questions, I just don't do it. So I can't even describe the amount of joy I have sitting across conversations in Australian agriculture. Like I get so much joy in seeing how the different commodity groups and sectors work, how they interact, how they don't interact, like how innovation you know, comes about. Like I get so much joy in watching like how people on the ground like absolutely drive significant change just from their own you know, sphere or from their own kind of work. All of that stuff like gives me so much joy. So again and again, like I'm often saying yes into those questions for agriculture because like the joy thing is ticked off straight away, right? <laughs> and then the is it worthwhile one is almost always ticked off. The is it doable question, <laughs> you know, like we're constantly trying to shift large paradigms. I mean, to get to $100 billion by 2030, we're constantly trying to shift large paradigms, try and change the face of workforce, try and get more young people engaged in agriculture. We're trying to shift paradigms. And so the is it doable question is often the hardest one to answer because, like, it can be sort of doable, but it could also miss the mark, you know? And that's, for me, I want to be impactful. I think the is it doable is also about doable and impactful the more I get older the more I think about my work. And my thinking there as well is because it's what's the level of influence and involvement that you can actually have versus what's needed from other people as well. And so that would be really an interesting conundrum for you to debate in terms of it might be doable for you to do it, but is actually the group of people that you're chatting to, are they actually ready to the level of transformation or whatever it might be, the, the level of change that's required? The challenge that comes out of that, I can imagine, would be quite interesting. I sat down and I did like a little bit of a, an exercise recently where I thought about you know, a number of buckets of work. Like, so for instance, the Horizon Scholarship Program, I have facilitated every year since 2010. So I tried to work through, that means there are about 600 Horizon Scholars that I've, I've worked with over that time. Haywire over 
you know, from 2007 to 2020, there would be about, you know, about 700, 800 young people that have worked through the summit part of Haywire with, and then more in other parts of the Haywire project, but just, you know, around that summit and facilitating something. And, you know, like then other projects similar as well, Rural Women's Awards, I've had a lot to do with over the years and some NFF projects as well and other projects around leadership. And I think that what I realised in that desktop exercise was that I was always being very cheeky around making sure that most of the investment of my time is in young people, not with a sense of solving today's problems, but preparing them to solve tomorrow's problems and you know like playing a long game around change and evolution and so it's great now to see like young people who are stepping up into leadership roles different types of mindsets and approaches and I don't think that I was conscious that that was what I was doing at the time but actually now I can look at it going this is like the way you see like you just build over time I always think like back around actually like people who are coming from very traditional farming backgrounds, young people, like that kind of looking at me with this, who is this odd, colourful, strange person, you know? And then often there's a reckoning point where they go, oh, wait, this person actually has something to offer me. And we usually then have like an amazing jam together, you know, like <laughs> something comes from that, that kind of aha moment. But actually like with the idea that in my brain, I think, yeah, well, we've got to get beyond 2030 as well, don't we? You know, like, these are going to be the people who will then be in the critical roles in 2031 and 2032 and 2040. And mindset and storytelling and culture and collaboration and being able to think inside the box and being able to radically redesign the box are all the things that agriculture is going to need at this critical point on planet Earth, you know, like where all of these things are happening at one climate, war, supply chains, you know, drought, extremes, questions of workforce, technology, when all of these things are happening at once, what we really need is tenacious leaders who are going to be able to think inside the box and radically redesign it. And so I think I've been sneaky over time around just planting those seeds in people. And really, I don't have a curriculum or I don't have an outcome in terms of what I hope when I'm working with people. There's no like magic formula. What I'm really interested in is who are you? What are your values? And then how are you going to be the best version of yourself? How are you going to succeed? You know, that's actually the core of my facilitation work. What are your strengths that we can build on? Because like when you start working in that way, you will then ultimately become curious and I think successful and impactful. It's like once you really know what you're on about, you will find your place. You'll find what you're really good at doing and then that's what you'll do. It's kind of like almost the opposite of what school and university is actually like. <laughs> you know, like we're going to try and fit you into a box. No, what you need to do is find where you sit as a leader and as a human being and where you add value. Once you know that, then you can be an incredible player. You find, unlock the brilliance. And I think what's so interesting, and I'd say you probably have maybe little recollection of it, but look, in 2018, I was up at Beef Australia. I was working for a business, we're a small startup. We had a phone app for 
farmers to use to help manage their farm. And then the real goal was how do we help prove provenance and traceability in the supply chain. But I was at Beef Australia and saw Fiona Simpson talk about the roadshow was going to begin soon for the industry consultation around, well, what does that roadmap look like? And I'd never heard of Fiona Simpson, to be honest. I don't think I'd ever heard of the National Farmers Federation or anything like that. (laughs) And I went down to Warrigal and was part of the day down there. And you were the facilitator. And I actually think like I can put it down to a day at a point in time because it was off the back of this. On that day specifically, you've facilitated it and gave everyone the opportunity to speak and be part of it. But then at the end of the day, you gave myself and someone called Ashley the chance to kind of do the rap. And, and it was a small video. It went on Facebook. To be honest, probably only 100 people have ever seen it. But like you gave me an opportunity which then gave me the confidence to apply for the 2030 Leaders Program. And to be honest, I was applying for that thinking there's not a chance I'm going to get into this. I'm kind of just going through the motions. But it was, I guess, it really was the beginning of, I think, for me, what has put the wheels in motion and and created that initial. You were the peak of the hill, I just got over, and then the momentum has kind of been able to develop from there and this validation of, well, if you are willing to put your hand up, if you are willing to get involved, and utilize your passions, which for me have been so much shaped from how I grew up and just my exposure and interest in different areas of the industry. But then underlying all of that is, well, how do we talk about ourselves and how do we communicate to a much bigger audience about the role that agriculture plays in the world? And so I think, firstly, I'll just owe you a thank you, but I'm sure you don't remember the day. But like, imagine how many different people's lives you've had this impact on, Bryce. I can actually now remember it like vividly beforehand i couldn't remember but i can now remember being in warrigal and i can remember i can absolutely remember the whole shape of that day and i can remember that room and i can i've got quite a a big connection to gippsland you know so like being in gippsland constantly for me i love gippsland so much and i'm also constantly feeling like there is so much more work to do in gippsland so like now you're painting that picture, I'm like, yeah, I can remember being in Warrigal. Because like any time I'm in Gippsland, I feel this immense love and this immense pressure about being in Gippsland, right? Let me reflect for a moment then on what I think that means in terms of my work, right? So one of the things I think I'm really on about is that the knowledge is always in the room or in the circle. And so like, I believe in making gatherings matter. I believe in not just doing a conference or a day or a meeting as a sort of box ticking exercise, but making sure that people's time is properly maximised and conversations have happened that are substantial, but also that the knowledge is in the room. Like there would have been in that room a number of really heavy hitters, people with big job titles. Yeah, I can absolutely recall Tony being in the room that day. I can't remember uh, Tony Ma, the NFF CEO. I can't remember if Fiona was there or not. I don't think she was. No, at that she wasn't. One. Matt Linegar, I reckon, you know, was. Yeah, but there, there was, you know, the VFF, you know, I can remember Emma was there as well. Like there were lots of people, there were lots of emerging and current leaders as well in that room. But actually just not worrying about people's job titles for a moment and going, the knowledge is here in the room for the conversation we're going to have. And we're going to have a great conversation because actually that matters, right? And that everybody has knowledge beyond their job titles, beyond their current role or their current, you know, title on their LinkedIn bio. But also I think that sitting in a circle really does matter. And I often do that a lot as a facilitator. Obviously, like, 
in First Nations culture, yarn circles are a, a big concept. But this is not exclusive to First Nations culture. You know, I'm Scottish as well, and you'll find in Scottish culture, there are gatherings where you do sit together, and in other cultures, very similar as well. And so sitting in a circle, having that sense that everyone has knowledge, making these moments matter. Like, so I think what I learned from Haywire, of course, was everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has so much voice that needs to be amplified. And so like actually when you're facilitating, providing that space for it to happen. And what was great about that NFF Talking 2030 process and why I think it has been so successful is that the NFF embodied that sort of leadership that I was talking to at that point. And that was a big leap, I think, you know, for like Tony and for Fiona and for Telstra and for others to kind of go, you're not going to do PowerPoint presentations. (laughs) You're not going to speak at everybody for two or three hours. Generally, we're going to sit together and you're going to listen and learn as much as you're contributing. And what I think came out of that process, because we did, you know, 25 or 30 of those sessions around Australia with people like yourself, Ollie, I think a whole movement of people suddenly became engaged with the NFF, engaged with these broader conversations around industry and leadership and have sparked projects and ideas that, I mean, now you can't see how humans of agriculture had come from that Talking 2030 piece, but there was a spark, there was a moment. And I think there are a number of those sparks. And so like, I mean, it's lovely to hear that because that's really what my ultimate work is about. You know, like I have no agenda, really. Like, I mean that in the sense of no agenda that's political. I'm not left and I'm not right. I sit in the middle. I've got no agenda in terms of a particular industry or a commodity group. I want everyone to succeed. I want everyone to thrive. I've got no agenda around, you know, technologies or policy. Again, I want to want to find the point every time where people can collaborate and work together at their best ability. That's where I'm always coming from. And that requires everyone to sit well in a circle together and to learn from one another. And it's lovely to hear that. I can just, you know, can see myself back in Warrigal right now <laughs> at that strange hotel in town where we were. <laughs> it's funny. Like it's, well, I'll say it's only five years ago, but it's also five years is quite a significant amount of time as well. <laughs> well, look, I mean, if I jump to that, you know, at that point, if you'd said to me that in five years' time you'd have a two-year-old and a three-year-old, I would have been like, absolutely not in a thousand years. Are you serious? I'm not even in a relationship. And, you know, my gender and my sexuality are very fluid ideas. I can't imagine this for a second. And actually, like, the same time that I was on that roadshow, I met my partner, Kat, you know, on a date one night. Actually, do you know what, Ollie? Yeah. I think just straight up that Warrigal night, I think I might have met Kat maybe that next night in Melbourne between there and Bendigo, right? (laughs) And so, like, I mean, five years is not a long time, but it is. But also that openness, like, as I was saying before, like, I had no plans to have kids. I've got a two-year-old and a three-year-old who I love. I had no plans to be in a relationship. Here here I am in that relationship now. I think that that openness and that curiosity, of course, goes into all parts of life. But also, like, when you're doing these journeys, it's not just about, you know, 
me asking everyone else to sit in a circle and be curious, I'm always doing it myself as I'm moving around and watching things. That's the gift of the work. Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives, those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. You've opened up an area which I I kind of had on the on the cards that I thought I might want to ask. Now you've got me very curious. So how have kids shaped you and, and your work and how have you benefited from that? Well, look, I mean, firstly, I think growing up like where I did and in that context of, of Ballarat, of intergenerational rural poverty, all of that stuff, I think that I really struggled for a long time, firstly, around sexuality and like particularly around very masculine notions and black and white notions as well. So like really, I think in Ballarat, there was basically you are either gay or you were straight, you know, and if you were gay, you're a poofter. And if you were a poofter, that was something you didn't want to be, you know, like it was a very brutal time and a brutal space. And I think a lot of people from rural and regional Australia look back at those times now and don't recognise themselves, you know, and that's something which I am very proud of. Like I think that rural and regional Australia has shifted so much in the space of 20 or 30 years on that narrative. And that makes you feel so confident about the future because if you could sort of shift that narrative in a generation imagine what you can do as human beings right but of course like the whole notion that there was something else like for instance being bi (laughs) was completely non-existent in my Ballarat mind it was because you know the whole thing around being a gay was like really fearful you know I was fearful around that idea and around that idea of being this thing that was just horrible which was a pufta so yeah like I think firstly it took me a long time to really grapple with that and with my own reality right and my own sense of who I was in the world and then when I started to become much more comfortable with it it probably coincided with when I was really starting to work within agriculture as well and so like how how queer could I be in a circle of farmers, for instance, was that going to be something that would be accepted and would be encouraged and welcomed? And I think that what I learned over time, and particularly during the Talking 2030 work, was the more truthful I became and the more myself I became and the more willing to just walk in my true skin, my true sense of being, the more willing other people were to work with me and to be part of that conversation, right? You know, so like I can remember having this kind of fear in the Talking 2030 work that was deep down going, oh, golly gosh, Longreach, Alice Springs, like places I'd worked in before, but going, (laughs) 
like how colorful should I be? Like what should I do? And I, I think I stuck to my guns and Fiona Simpson kind of went, Bryce, you be yourself. You always have to be yourself. And actually what I found was people met me, you know, with, with love and with collaboration and with willingness in the way that you described in Warrigal, that it, that, that happened everywhere. And so like, it's been a huge journey to get to that point of like loving oneself, right? And then like falling in love when you don't expect to and then sort of having the conversation around, well, what about children? Like, is this something we should do? What I have found in this process is becoming a, a dad has literally been the best and the worst thing I have ever done in equal measure. And I think that the truth about parenting, you know, and I've talked with Steph from Motherland about this as well and others, the truth about parenting is that it's actually the best and the worst thing you can ever do as a human being. You know, like by best, I mean in an extreme way, the most affirming, the most love you'll ever feel, the most joy you'll ever feel. And by worst, I mean, you know, you are down in the mud at times. You know, you have to sacrifice so much of yourself. You have to really work hard in terms of being present and being, you know, there for what is needed to be a good parent, to be a present parent, to be an engaged parent. And so probably that's been multiplied by the fact that just after Evoke 2020, Neo, well, Neo was born actually a week or two before Evoke 2020. So that was in January 2020. And of course, at Evoke 2020, we were on that stage at the Melbourne Exhibition Centre, a thousand of us there. And within two weeks, Melbourne was locked down for, you know, the best part of the next two years, on and off. And so, like, raising babies in that kind of extremity was absolutely the hardest thing I've ever done. You know, like, trying to stay optimistic about the world and having a, you know, a newborn who's seven or eight weeks old. And if you jump back to March 2020, Ollie, like, that real sense that there of the impending doom that was there at that particular time. I think we forget now that in that kind of window of March 2020, we were texting and calling one another with the sense that a lot of us were going to die, you know. And look, and many people did as well. But that sense that, you know, this was just catastrophic, what we were entering into. So I think that, like, becoming a parent at this time has completely altered and shaped who I am and how I think about the world. It's shaped how I facilitate. I find now I am so much more emotional as a facilitator <laughs> than I ever was. It used to be a job that I do with love and joy and presence. I basically, at the end of every thing that I facilitate now, like go out and cry afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like finish like a set of conversations around of sustainability and circular economy with all the RDCs, 15 of them in the room around some projects they want to invest in. You know, then afterwards I just step outside and I have a cry because I can't not think about my three-year-old and my two-year-old. <laughs> and also can't not take joy now in watching people work well together in those conversations in a very different way to when I was a single non-parent. I mean, I don't do it in front of people, Ollie. Like, I do it, you know, 
<laughs> when you get corridor. that moment off to the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of very strange as well. I mean, I guess that it's also that thing around humility and learning. I think being a parent, you really learn you can't you can't do everything all the time. And so I'm I'm constantly adjusting in my presence and in my way of facilitating as a result. And then I just have this, you know, three-year-old who is like literally 100% me. Like she is <laughs> so me. And I kind of thought when we we're going into this that we would get a nice mixture of me and my partner. I was like, okay, you know, like that, that would be lovely. Like a mixture of us would be nice. But the three-year-old is like 100% me. And so that means for anyone who knows me really well, we've got our hands full. <laughs> you know, we've got our hands full. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't change any of this for the world. And I'm so happy that I kind of got to that point in life where I learned to love myself and I learned to be my truth because like that actually allowed me then to then be open to this next moment where I found my person. And that was, you know, again, yeah, I think if we'd had this conversation 10 years ago, I didn't see it happening. I didn't see it as being possible. Well, it's amazing what can happen in five years, Bryce. And thank you so much for sharing everything, your whole story. I guess the story up until this part with us. I do have one question. I think your answer will be really interesting because you live and breathe this stuff and you would have done it 10 times over. But for our audience who haven't had the chance to be in the room when you might have talked to it, if you had the chance to head down the road and chat to year 10 students in a metropolitan school, what would you tell them about the opportunities in agriculture and why they should consider it as a career? I mean, the first argument that I would make is, are you interested in a better tomorrow? Are you interested in climate change? Are you interested in sustainability? Are you interested in making a better world? And if you are interested in those things, the place where you could have the most impact would be in agriculture. And that in agriculture, the key responsibility is around feeding every single person and clothing every single person and supporting life. That's the key responsibility of agriculture. But agriculture also holds the keys to the doors that open up so many other conversations, particularly around what does a sustainable future look like? What are we going to do to best look after this planet? And that this is the opportunity for young people to be part of shaping the future. And so that would be my first argument, right? But, you know, like if I then started getting into conversations with them at a deeper level, every single bright spark that I work with from agriculture when they graduate with their degrees are inundated with really good job offers. You know, like with job offers that don't look like what you expect them to look like. So it is about also what do you think the nourishing of agriculture is? If you're a year 10 person in Footscray, do you think the agriculture of, uh, the narrative of agriculture is, you know, dry paddock, an old farmer, a drought? Is that what you think the, the narrative is? No, there are jobs like that you can't even imagine or like fully like comprehend right now. So you could be flying drones, you could be working in labs, you could be working in aquaculture, you could be working in precision ag, you could be a food scientist, you could be working in vertical farming in the city, yeah, flying drones, you're designing aquaponics, 
You could be working as an agricultural economist, or you could be working in forestry or fisheries or supply chain, or you could be working in genetics. The lists go on and on and on. And so I think that actually that that big picture, this is an industry that's worth being part of because actually it is about the future of the planet. Secondly, this is an industry that you could help shape right now. And then thirdly, there are jobs for everyone in this industry, you know, like storytellers, like you and I, <laughs> designers, the list goes on and on, accountants, um, IT specialists, data specialists, engineers, you know, like Ollie, one of the Horizon Scholars last year was the only agricultural engineer graduate in the whole of Australia. We only had one last year, you know, but we need people who can design and develop machinery, equipment, who can work hand in hand with farmers around specifically tailored agricultural, you know, platforms and, and, and systems that are going to work in our, in our unique context. So there was only one last year. It's like... Is that... Primitive. Sorry, that was an agriculture engineer. There was only one graduate in Australia. Only one last year. Only one last year. A Horizon Scholar. You know, so like for me... The possibilities are endless. The challenge that we have is that the year 10 students, and, the, and when you use the analogy before around in a metropolitan location, let's not kid ourselves for a moment. This is not just a metropolitan conversation, but where does the peri-urban fringe sit in this conversation and what about the big regional centres? Because if you're in Geelong or if you're in Wollongong or if you're in Ballarat or if you're on the Gold Coast, or if you're in Newcastle, or, or if you're in Cairns, or Mackay, or wherever, chances are you are probably not connected with agriculture at all as well. And there is a whole um, barrel of potential workforce poten your possibilities in those places. So this is not just a city versus country thing. It's really getting to the core of a whole lot of people who are not seeing the possibilities and a narrative that's not connecting with them. And we also know that we need our best and brightest in this space. So, you know, get me out to those U10s. Let me have them, please. Like, let me, <laughs> like, let's get on the road and have those conversations because everything that I'm saying, I fundamentally believe to be true. And I also believe will for these U10s be game changers if they can enter into industry, if they can see a pathway in, it's going to be an industry that they love. We just need to find that door or that gateway to get them in in the first place. So a follow-up question on that, Bryce. It doesn't have to be hugely wordy or anything. Is the gateway to that through education and the curriculum or is it literally just awareness and exposure, you think, by showing them and chatting and conversing about what's possible? Oh, golly. <laughs> And you asked for like a non-wordy answer to probably the, the thing that I lose sleep over at night. This is the question I lose sleep over at night. <laughs> You've got two sides to that coin. So firstly, the side of schools and education. After working and leading or being in, a, in an executive role in an international university for five years, the challenges around curriculum being relevant and industry engaged and keeping up with innovation are just immense, right? Before you build into it the challenges of 
the school system, the secondary school system, resourcing allocation. And in rural and regional Australia, like basically schools struggling to keep on with just the basic job of running a school, right? So like, firstly, I think we don't have anywhere near the kind of footprint that we need in agriculture to be properly infiltrating the school system well. And the curriculum, of course, struggles to keep up with the reality, you know, like the reality of the innovations that are happening and the reality of industry. And so, like, there are so many good people who are working in this space, but they're doing the best job they can do in a set of broken systems. The school system is a broken system. Uh, The education system is not working for young people and it's not working for industry and it's not working for society. So we're frustrated in agriculture that not enough is happening in this space, but these are a set of broken systems and we haven't yet come up with a solution to work within these broken systems better, right? On the flip side, you can't be what you can't see. I absolutely agree with that. And dominant narratives are hard to kill off. And so, like, there is a narrative that has existed for a long time around farming is hard work, the struggling farmer, dying farms, dying rural communities. And that narrative, like, echoes throughout society and Australian society in major ways. And at times we dial up that narrative as well because, like, it's important politically to dial it up and it's important at critical moments. What we haven't landed at all is the notion that that narrative can be true and it exists from time to time or it exists a lot of the time alongside another narrative which is true, which is that agriculture is also an industry that's full of possibilities and full of jobs. And so, like, how do we get to a point where we have those two things sitting side by side well? Because I don't want to, like, for a moment pretend that there is not harsh and hard realities that exist in agriculture and in rural industries, because that would be doing a huge disservice to so many people who are facing hardship at critical moments of crisis or needing assistance, right? But when that narrative becomes dominant and that young people don't see anything else, we have a problem. And so, like, I think that the two sides here, one around the system itself, one of the questions that I'm asking constantly in my own mind is, are there ways that we could just work so much more efficiently to get all of the people who are interested in agriculture and education just working smarter, not harder together in a broken system? You know, like, are there ways that we can just create better connections between our own people just to make the education offering so much more solid? Because I think there's a lot of reinventing the wheel and replicating in that space. So, you know, maybe we need to have a gathering and just ask the question, can we work smarter, not harder on the Mm. education front? Because we're not going to be able to reinvent the system because it's it's a broken system. On the other side, it's really how do we have a complex narrative that, you know, doesn't do a disservice to some of the realities, but can also, like, dial up some of the possibilities. And that would require all of us to also give a little bit away as well. Like, we have to all be willing to sort of shift in our language and our approach to be able to open up that sense that a year 10 could get excited about agriculture. And it's so much more, Ollie, than just, 
oh, well, like, let's bust them out to a farm. Mm. Yeah, let's get them to do a, a week of work experience. There's so much more than that. It has to be, do young people feel excited about STEM and learning their science really well? Do they feel excited about design and engineering and seeing that that fits in with agriculture? It has to be, as I was saying before, understanding that there are so many other career paths that intersect with this industry. And that at the moment, the narrative in their minds, of course, is farms. And that is important, but it's just one part of the future of agriculture. So how do we see that whole story? That's what I lose sleep over at night. Um, because, of course, I feel like if we don't win this battle, then I can't be optimistic about the future. And I do see it as a battle right now because we, we are competing against very well-resourced industries who are data-driven and are really good at attracting the best and the brightest talent. So we've got to somehow find the narrative that's going to start to build agriculture up as that possibility, that place where you need to be. Well, Bryce, we're very lucky to have you as as part of that and involved in so many of the conversations. But I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to sit down for a chat because I've really enjoyed it. I've got a lot out of it. And you've now sent my brain into thinking. <laughs> so now I know where my afternoon's going. <laughs> Look, I want to say thank you to you. This podcast regularly just gives me so much joy in hearing stories of people and like reminding myself as well again and again and again and again that actually like the biggest change happens by someone just putting their hand up to do something you know and I hear it again and again on this podcast you know like this problem happened or, or you know I then met this kind of fork in the road and I chose to go this way or go that way and from that my business emerged or you know, like I learned this valuable lesson. And I feel like from these stories, from the humans of agriculture, we are we learn so much. We learn so much about resilience and about life, but also we get to see strategy in action, you know, like actually people getting on and doing things. And thank you so much for it. I love it so much. Thank you, Bryce. Well, that's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts and, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. See ya.